Welcome to Stage 16. Today on the show, we have loads to talk about, from a possible revelation about the classic series The Sopranos, to bounty hunter Boba Fett, from Bradley Cooper going sci-fi to Kendall Roy melting down on Succession. We'll talk about some major players joining Chris Nolan's new film, and we'll follow up some of our news from last week's preview episode on the accident on the set of Rust. So stick around. All right, Mr. Roberts, here we go. First official episode. If you missed our preview episode where we introduced ourselves and talked a bit about our backgrounds, how we came to work in the film industry and met each other, that is on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and Google Podcasts for you to listen to. But we want to sort of just start right away today, and we're going to start with television. So last week in the preview episode, as I was mentioning, uh, my co-host Sean Roberts talked a bit about his love for HBO's series The Sopranos. And this week there's been a bit of buzz about that show sort of wrapping around a new film. But I guess I would say that a theory, a long-held theory about the end of The Sopranos was possibly revealed. So, Sean, if you want to sort of dive in on that. Yeah, so David Chase, the creator of The Sopranos, sat down for an interview with Scott Feinberg, host of the Hollywood Reporters Awards Chatter podcast at Chapman University, where he somewhat opaquely revealed that the infamous cut to black at the end of the series did in fact spell doom for anti-hero Tony Soprano, played by the late, great James Gandolfini. He was a little vague about how it played out in the episode itself, but what he did say is that he had an idea about how Tony should die on the show while driving through Manhattan one day as the show always started with Tony driving home to Jersey. And the show would therefore end with Tony driving into the city for a meeting at which he'd get whacked. So let me ask you this. I mean, you're you're obviously a huge fan of the show, bigger fan of the show even than I am. And I, I like this show, but you rewatch it every year. Is that, I mean, obviously there were a lot of people during the original run when it ended that cut to black, I mean, that is famous, right? That yes. is just, there were a lot of people that were pissed off. Um, and Chase in that interview says as much like, you know, you, you've been on this journey with this character for whatever it is, seven, five years, seven years, and you, you want to see him get whacked? Like, why do you want that? So how do you feel? How, how did you feel about the ending the, when you first saw it? And has that changed at all? I was fine with it then, and I'm still fine with it. I think that it's kind of like the Seinfeld finale. There's no perfect way to end a beloved series like that. And leaving it open to interpretation, I'm fine with. I don't. I definitely do not need to see Tony Soprano get killed. And if they just left, I mean, if they left it open where he was alive and you knew that, then you knew, okay, he's getting ready to go on trial. It's almost like the show couldn't have ended. So I don't think there was any perfect way to end that series. And I think that he did a fine job with it. And it does... It creates a conversation that here we are 14 years later still happening, which is you know, interesting in, in itself that we're still talking about that series finale. Maybe if it, it had ended with him getting killed, I can tell you this for sure. If it had ended with him getting killed, I don't think it would be as loved that finale because people would not have liked that, frankly. So by leaving it open the way they did, it kept it, kept it keeps discussion going and it keeps it to where uh, 
in our minds, Tony is still alive if that's what we want to believe. I like that. Do Is that in your mind the first time you saw it? Did you want to say, no, nah, he didn't get whacked by the guys that walked in the door of that diner? For you, is was Tony still alive? Yeah, for me, I felt that he was still alive. But to be honest, I didn't really overthink it anyway. I, um, I The last couple seasons of that series, I don't think were as strong as the first three seasons were. So it's not something that I really spent many, many hours thinking about. I just, the show ended and that's what happened. And uh, I do think he was still alive in it though. But I didn't, I, again, it's not something I over, overthought. It's interesting because, I mean, I, I definitely... His revelation, if it's a revelation, that he had already been thinking about how Tony Soprano would get killed on that series wasn't a surprise to me because we're talking about mafia people and how many people did Tony and, and his guys and Maltesanti, how many how many have they killed over the course of that show? So the way that it was set up, I you know, I think if maybe people were upset about anything, it's that he teased it a little bit, right? Because there were people, I haven't watched that finale in years, but there were a couple sort of Italian-looking tough guys that walked into that diner. Absolutely, we're wearing a members-only jacket. Yes, yeah. they absolutely teased that, yeah. So, you know, the, I, I think that's probably why people got upset, because it was like, well, here are the guys that we're going to assume are there to kill Tony, and then you're not going to give us the satisfaction of whether it happens or not. So for me, I always assumed because of the members only guys, okay, Tony, Tony got whacked. Yeah, well, there you go. So then you and I had different opinions of it. But again, it goes back to 14 years later, we're still talking about it. Yeah, exactly. Well, part of the uh, reason that we're all still talking about it, part of the reason Feinberg did the conversation with David Chase was that the I don't want to jump too far off television yet, but uh, The Many Saints of Newark is a feature film that Chase wrote and produced that tells a, an, an earlier story in the line of The Sopranos, right? And Chase himself just booked a fresh five-year first-look deal at HBO. Um, and we, you and I, Sean, and had a conversation about what that could mean for the franchise of The Sopranos, if, if we can call it such a thing. And while I think I didn't really like Many Saints uh, very much, we still talked about how we could get excited for another series, like a 1980s Manhattan set when, when Manhattan was just shitty and disgusting and dirty, and to see... Michael Gandolfini potentially running around playing Tony in the 80s. Definitely. And interestingly, though, while he did confirm to the H HBO one of the series that would start from the time the movie ends and run until the time the series begins, he's actually quoted that he's not anxious to do that. And what, when pressed by Feinberg, he said he'd prefer to do one more movie first, which I think is a mistake. You know, it, it, it's all to me, that's almost insulting to the legacy of The Sopranos, which was a television series. And it almost sounds to me like Chase almost is sticking his nose up at that and saying, no, I only want to do another film, which I think is foolish. I think that it, it's a no brainer to turn it into a series, pick it up maybe five years after the film ended. You could bring in to young Tony Blundett, so many characters, young Ralphie. Be interesting trying to cast the young Joey Pants, bring everybody into it and lead it straight up to the early 90s or that, you know, the show starts in 1999. So you the possibilities are endless there for another seven or eight seasons if it's done properly. 
I have a feeling that that is what HBO is going to press on him. And I have a feeling that the cast is going to show their enthusiasm to David Chase. And uh, I think it'll probably happen. I, I don't see them doing another film. If they do, then I feel that it will be an HBO Max original film. I don't think Warner Brothers is interested in spending another $50 million on a sequel, because that's what the budget was for The Many Saints in Newark. I think that maybe if maybe if he insists on doing another two-hour film, they do a lower-budget HBO Max version only that does not get a theatrical release. We'll see. I hope that it turns into a series, because I think that that show is beloved. And a prequel series, to me, I don't think will ever be as good as the original. I, don't, I just don't see that's even possible. But as a fan of that world, I would be watching it every Sunday night. Well, the interesting thing about the film for me, and, and uh, you know, we've talked about this uh, before we started doing this podcast, is that the, the arc of Tony Soprano really was not explored or even established in Many Saints. So that, that entire storyline is right there waiting to be told if, if people are interested, which I, I would be. Um, I, I wonder if Chase is still the 800-pound gorilla at HBO given the sort of lackluster response to Many Saints and I wonder if he's got the power to sort of put his foot down and say, no, it's either a movie or nothing. Like, I'm not, I'll no. hand you some new scripts. Because a first look deal for people that don't know just means that HBO get a, gets a first look at what he produces, what he writes. Correct. They don't have to make it. Uh, they He just has to present it to them first, give them the chance to say yes, um, and then he can shop it elsewhere. Now, he can't do that with Sopranos-related properties because HBO has the rights to those characters in that series, and they produced it. However, you know, he could write some sort of BS version of it that he knows they're going to pass on just so he can go do something else. Perhaps. I think HBO will <laughs> apply as much pressure as they can, because even though the film did not do well theatrically, they said that they couldn't really quantify it monetarily because it did bring in so many more viewers to rewatch this the original soprano it brought that show back into public conversation and it brought more subscribers to hbo max who maybe didn't even sign on to watch the many saints of tour maybe they signed up to watch the sopranos because of all the articles that came out about it in retrospectives because of the film so i i guarantee you hbo who is very hot right now on IP for that streaming platform, hence all the DC stuff that they're doing and spinoffs there. And I had no doubt that they they will be pushing David Chase hard for a Sopranos prequel series. And hopefully he relents and does it because I, I think that would be a very buzzy show. I think it would do very well for the network and everybody would love it. I agree. I would watch. Um, sticking with HBO, let's talk about uh, Succession for those who haven't seen it, you may want to skip ahead a couple minutes in this podcast if you're listening. But uh, this was episode three, and we got uh, an episode called The Disruption, written by Ted Cohen, Georgia Pritchett, and Jamie Carragher. The episode was directed by Kathy Ann. It's interesting. I looked her up. I don't know if you know who she is, Sean, but um, she did... Uh, she's only done two features. That's right. She did She did Birds of Prey with Margot Robbie, which is actually my favorite DC film of all time. Is it really? No, I'm actually kidding. I never even saw it. 
Um, <laughs> okay, I didn't see it either. No. Also did a film called Dead Pigs with Z- Zazie Beats, which I don't think either one of us have seen. No, I haven't seen that. Prior, she's only done short films. So, yeah, that's an impressive leap. Yeah. Well, it is. It, it, the reason I looked her up is because I thought the episode was really well directed. I liked everything about it. Um, I mean, I usually like a lot of things about the show, but just stylistically, I thought she did some really interesting stuff. Indeed. The episode is is a, a pretty revealing and, and another dark journey, I think, for Kendall Roy, character of Kendall Roy. It certainly, for me, I thought really lean into his sort of arrogance of thinking that he has everything under control and everything on lock. And while he did get a pretty significant one over on Shiv in the episode, it's still, I think, far and away, he comes off more like the villain now. I would agree. And I do think at next year's Emmys, that uh, Jeremy Strong will be nominated and the clip that they will show is him sitting in that control room where the computers are and basically having a meltdown moment because I thought that was a phenomenal scene. And yeah, it's interesting. It definitely spun things around on him. And there was a line in that letter that Shiv puts out about uh, Kendall I thought was interesting where she called out his grandiose grandiose feelings of himself comparing himself to great men in history and it shows kind of how far off the rails Kendall is and yeah that was that was a very uh, telling scene in that whole sequence where he was at the talk show and he's fired up and he's ready to go and that letter from his sister you could tell really devastated him and spun things around which I think is great going forward in, in the future episodes is it's going to be a lot of ups and downs, I think, for Kendall Roy this season. Yeah, definitely. And the the moment you mentioned, I actually think the moment right before he goes into that server room at the talk show is the moment when he's still standing in that hallway after he's had the conversation with that woman. And you can see in his eyes, she's like, you're going to stay. So you're staying. You're going to stick around. And he's like, uh uh, yeah, sure. Yeah, of course. You know. Yeah. Uh, and she sort of says, "Okay, well, we got like ten minutes or whatever." She steps away, and you can just see in his eyes, like he is, he is destroyed, knowing that he's going to have to go sit on morning television or whatever and confront that letter. Right. Yeah. Mark my words. That that bits of that episode is what will be at the Emmys when they're showing his reel when he's nominated. Well, uh, yeah, and I'd, I'd go one further and say Kathy Yan will probably get a DGA nomination out of that. It's it's a stellar episode. Well done episode. And I'm excited about next week's episode, the one that actually is on, uh, yeah, this next episode, episode four, because the trailer shows that Adrian Brody's character is being introduced. And you and I are both big fans of his and think he, and he's going to be a good mix to the show. Yeah, I think for for people who don't know, Adrian Brody's joining and also Alexander Skarsgård is joining this season. We're fans of both of them, and I think they absolutely fit into the world of the show really well. I can't wait to see what they do with them. Agreed. Looking at something else from television, Disney Plus dropped their new trailer for Boba Fett, which is going to premiere on December 29th of this year. What did you think of the trailer? Um I was expecting more. There weren't any moments in the trailer that really excited me. Frankly, it does. They're definitely leaning into that kind of underground criminal mafia world that uh, Jabba used to run on Tatooine. And I think, I think they're holding a lot back. I hope that they're holding a lot back because 
that trailer honestly didn't blow me away, but I do feel like I feel that they are holding it back. And I hope that it is exciting. I will say that of the upcoming Star Wars series, which are coming in the next 12 months, I'd say, which is Obi-Wan, the Cassian Andor show, and then of course the Mandalorian returning. This is the one that I don't know, I'm kind of the least excited about. So I'm more excited about what's coming after this. But I hope to be surprised. Uh, I, I Truthfully, I never thought that the trailers for the seasons of Mandalorian were all that exciting. And the show did hold a lot back, which I am a, I like that. So I think, it, I think it's going to be good. But we'll see. Well, you and I have talked a lot, especially during the, the last two seasons of Mandalorian, about I think you're even a bigger fan of that show than I am. I've, I've had a lot of problems with the writing on those shows. I still enjoy them. I still watch them. I still can't believe the level of complexity and visual effects and things that we're getting on television on <laughs> just in our living rooms these days. Yeah. Um, but but I do I see elements of Boba Fett where I'm like, well, this is probably going to be another just another version of Mandalorian. It'd be interesting to see how they move away and, and sort of create their own storyline, because I think if I'm if I'm not mistaken, you can hear Din Djarin talking in the trailer for Boba Fett. I may have missed that, but that is certainly the case. But back to your point about the effects in this show, it still blows me away that a Star Wars series is a reality. It's the sort of thing that we have talked about and Star Wars fans have wanted for 40 years, frankly. And I go back and rewatch some of the Mandalorian episodes and it's still kind of, it still blows me away that this is an actual series. We're seeing all these characters. We're seeing a Star Wars world. And I'm really excited about what's coming up. I'm really excited for the time to finally come where instead of going a year without a show, there will always be a Star Wars series on Disney Plus. Because I think what they're going to do is a series will end or a season of a show will end and it'll roll right into another. And they will literally have 12 months out of the year of Star Wars programming and as a, as a fan, I'm really excited about that. I don't know if it'll ever get there. I think they'll follow the Marvel model. I mean, obviously, WandaVision came out and played well, and then now we have, we've just finished Loki, but they didn't, like, land one on top of another, and there hasn't been anything since Loki. Well, maybe not. Well, but that's true, I guess. And Loki did end about two months ago. We're we're gonna get we're gonna get Hawkeye for for Christmas, which is interesting. They made it look like a Christmas show. Yeah. But I feel like they'll still keep a little distance. But yeah, if you had told me in 1983 after the end of Jedi that we were gonna be able to sit at home and watch a Star Wars series, I mean, I would have taken it then, and the, the visual effects would not have been what they are now. Right. So it's wild. It, it's really cool. And there are episodes where the effects in them, everything I'm watching, there's no difference between that and seeing a Star Wars film, a cinematic Star Wars film. I think they are on the exact same par as that. And it's terribly exciting. It Definitely. It has been an exciting time to be a Star Wars fan since 2012, when uh, Lucas finally sold everything and they announced there are going to be more films. And I think it's going to continue to be an exciting time to be a fan. Personally, I am more, I am more excited about the Obi-Wan series than I've been for anything having to do with Star Wars in many, many years. So I'm, I have very high expectations for that series. Yeah, I do too. I'm excited about that, particularly since they got Hayden Christensen and Joel Edgerton back. That's pretty wild. So yeah, definitely 
It's a good time to be a Star Wars fan. Sean, let me ask you this. Are you still watching Invasion on Apple Apple TV Plus and caught up on that? I watched, what was it, the first two, I guess, and I've not gone back to it just yet. But I liked those. I just haven't, I just haven't kept on with it yet. Well, we'll have to continue this discussion on a future episode because episode five was on last night and I have seen them all. And it's interesting what they're doing with it, but they are... I, I, they're very they're slow rolling this alien invasion and i'm a, i'm kind of afraid that they're holding so much back that maybe in episode 10 the finale of the season that you'll finally see the invasion actually happening instead of just sporadic bits and pieces of it and i i this, i think the show looks well looks great it's very well cast it's high production value but I'm not hearing a lot about it, and I don't know if it really is caught on to uh, to pop culture and gotten a big audience at this point. So it'll be interesting to see if Apple renews it for a second season, because I guarantee you every single episode probably costs about fifteen million dollars a piece. And I wish, I wish, I wish they would jump a little bit more into actually showing us what is going on instead of tease after tease after tease. But it's 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 worth watching for sure. Yeah, the the thing that sort of left me, I guess, I don't know, I think it's the end of episode two where there's like a pan up on the camera and you're kind of under one of the tripod things and you can see it. Uh, and I was like, OK, well, good. If, if we're getting to it now, if we're going to start to see what this is. But it sounds like what you're saying is we're still not. Not at all. And in fact... That what you're talking about in episode two was actually the closest they have come to showing us the spaceships or the aliens or whatever is happening. And they've actually backed off that for the next three episodes going forward, which is a bit disappointing. Yeah, it's a strange choice. It's a strange choice. I think that they are really slow rolling it and hoping to get a season two to to kind of put it out there in our face what's going on. But it, it, I'm afraid that it, it may not happen. It may be slow rolling it too much to where audiences are not really going to be interested in it. We'll see. Did you ever look at uh, Foundation on Apple Plus? Have not started it yet. No. Are you caught up on it? No. I, I the same thing. I watched two. I think I watched it when you know they dropped two episodes early. It's we were just talking about how great Star Wars looks. It's the most phenomenal sci-fi thing uh, maybe I've ever seen. Even thinking theatrically it's stunning but like carnival row and things like that it, it's so heavy into the, the politics even to some extent like dune uh they're just talking about this sort of political stuff and i'm just like i don't i mean i don't get it but i kind of don't care like i just want to see more of the cool visuals and get to the fun stuff it's it all sort of has to be this really heavy whatever. Um, and so I haven't gone back. I will. I, I'm just not uh, super invested in it at the moment. Well, Foundation is another show where obviously very expensive, which is not surprising since Apple has more money than most countries do to spend on these things. But I'm, I'm not reading anything about it. Nobody's talking about it. There's no buzz about it. Well, like the morning show, they've already greenlit a second season. So they have, but also like the morning show, I question if they're going to green light a third season. I think they may be holding on to hope, but I, I think that show is probably so expensive to produce that they're just not, unless it really catches on buzz, they're just not going to do it. 
Well, the morning show is another one where you you're into it, right? You watch it. We do. We, I've watched watched every episode. We will because my girlfriend likes it. Uh, but I really I like those actors. But but storyline and every I mean, I could just I could do without it. I don't need to watch it. It definitely it definitely feels very unrelatable to most people in the world, unless you work for the Today Show or Good Morning America. It, it, it definitely has what I call a lot of high class problems in the show, which I think that 99.99% of the population is not going to care at all about. So I, I don't, yeah, I don't think that show will continue to last. Okay. So what else we got? I want to move us over to film. So at the time we're recording this, some new Netflix movies have come out, but army of thieves, the Zack Snyder production with Deborah Snyder, of Matthias Schweighofer's movie uh, was the number one film in more than 90 countries over the Halloween weekend. Did you watch it? I did not. I personally was not a big fan of Zach. Uh, now I'm forgetting what his film was, the zombie film that came out this summer. <laughs> the Army Army of the Dead. That, yeah, I, it, landed, it landed so flat for me that I, I really didn't have any interest in this. And... Actually, the character that is that leads this new film um, did not register with me at all personally in Army of the Dead. So no, so I, that is one that has not made my uh, my viewing list and may not actually. Really? Okay. See, I'm uh, I'm I'm not a I'm not a big zombie guy. I'm not a big horror film guy in general, and I'm definitely not a big Snyder guy. Uh, the whole, you know, release the Snyder Cut. I never finished the Justice League black and white 4-3 edit thing, whatever that whole thing was. Um, I will say, though, I am a fan of heist movies and safecracker movies, and I did like his character in Army of the Dead. He's one of the few that I that I liked because he was kind of the humor. He was the, the, the scream that he did I thought was hilarious. Um, and so I was pretty surprised to hear that not only was he starring in the spinoff, but uh, directing as well. Um, Natalie Emanuel from Game of Thrones and from the Fast and Furious series is in it. And I have a major crush on her. So uh, I was intrigued. And I got to say, I enjoyed it. Um, it. It's pretty fun. It's not, uh, you know, you could tell they have a little lower budget. Uh, then maybe they could have. They could have gone bigger with things, but it's pretty fun. Uh, the actors are great, all the actors in it, and the end is the only thing. Is a, I, I won't give it away, but it takes a real sort of tonal shift. Um, but they also set it up, of course, for a sequel, which apparently everything has to do now. You just have to automatically, whether you deserve one or not or you're going to get one or not, you have to set up for a sequel. So, um I thought it was cool. Uh, I don't know that I would say, Roberts, hey, you have to watch it. It's not It's not that kind of thing. It's kind of if you're not – if you don't have anything else on your list and you're looking for something on a Friday night or a Saturday night, um, it's cool. It's fun. So if you're a musical fan, uh, you're going to be very happy. Um, you, have, of course, have uh, West Side Story, Spielberg's remake of the West Side Story coming out this year. Uh, but news broke Friday that pop superstar and multi-Grammy winner Ariana Grande and two-time Oscar nominee Cynthia Erivo, who is also an Emmy nominee, Grammy winner, and Tony winner, 
uh, will both be starring in Universal's feature adaptation of the hit Broadway show Wicked. Wicked is one of three musicals to break a billion dollars on Broadway. It, of course, tells the story of the relationship between Glinda the Good Witch and the Wicked Witch of the West from Wizard of Oz. Uh, The new film will be directed by John Chu, who has done some action movies and stuff, some G.I. Joe stuff, uh, but probably best known at this point for Crazy Rich Asians and his recent feature adaptation of Lin-Manuel Miranda's musical In the Heights. Right. This is going to be Grande's second sort of big film after Don't Look Up, which Adam McKay directed and has Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence. It's coming out on Netflix later this year. So she's made some appearances in things before on television and in a couple of films. But this is a pretty big leap. It is a big leap. It's a big move for her. And, and she's following in the footsteps of like, you know, Taylor Swift's done a couple movies now. Uh, obviously, Cats being one did not work out so well for Taylor Swift. <laughs> so we'll see what happens with this. I've never seen Wicked on Broadway. I've seen, uh, not that I've seen a lot of Broadway, but I've seen a few things. Um, it Honestly, the, the commercials for Wicked always sort of put me off <laughs> because of the song at the end. I hated it. I would hear it so much in LA. I was like, no, nah, I'm never going to watch that. Um, so yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens with that. Of course, I am excited about West Side Story. The original was my mother's favorite musical ever. So I grew up with it a lot as a kid. The trailer, some of the shots that Spielberg does, it's very clear that you're going to get a lot of those Spielberg moments, those, those classic Spielberg shots, Spielberg and Kaminsky. So I am, I wouldn't say I'm excited about it. I, I don't feel like we needed another West Side Story, but, but I do want to see it. Well, personally, I'm not a fan of musicals, so that's not high on my list. But obviously, I'm a big Spielberg fan, so that's we'll see. I'll catch on HBO Max one day. <laughs> there you go. Um, okay, moving on to another one. Um, imagine this is probably one you haven't gotten to yet, but I want to talk about The Harder They Fall. Uh, the Harder They Fall premiered on Netflix this week. This is a sort of new take on the classic Western genre written by James Samuel and Boaz Yakin and directed and scored by Samuel. And I got to say, the score is pretty excellent. Um, it features a ton of great sort of needle drop music, including stuff by uh, Jay-Z and Kid Cudi. Jay-Z is also one of the producers. And it features, more than anything else, uh, if you've watched the trailers, just a phenomenal cast. Some great people. We've got Jonathan Majors. we got Idris Elba, Regina King, Lakeith Stanfield, Zazie Beetz, Delroy Lindo, R.J. Kyler, Daniel Deadweiler, and just, it's stacked, this movie. It also has some excellent action sequences. Some of it feels very tarantino Um, And so I wasn't very surprised when I saw that Lawrence Bender was one of the producers on it. That was uh, that was news to me. But uh, it it never quite the dialogue never quite reaches Tarantino level. But I will say the movie is really fun. The dialogue is still cool. The action is fantastic. The production design in the movie is incredible Um, and the costume design. So I want to mention those two people. Uh, production designers, a guy named Martin Whist, who did a series of unfortunate events, Down With Love, Cloverfield, the RoboCop remake, uh, which I didn't see, 
terrible. <laughs> well, that's probably why I didn't. And then costume designers, someone named Antoinette Messam, who did Colossal Orphan Creed and Hold the Dark, which was a Netflix movie that was really good. So in, in particular, they go to one town. It's it's near the end. This is not a spoiler. Um, the whole town is white. And I don't mean the people. I mean the whole town. And it's astonishing because I've never seen that in a Western. And there's another town that is almost, it feels like it could be in the in the sort of, um, like in San Francisco, in the hate, you know, with everything really colorfully painted and individually painted. And we're so used to seeing these Western towns and just the drab, weather-worn wood that to see these two towns depicted as something different, I mean, it was like a breath of fresh air. It was so cool. So I know you haven't seen it. Highly recommend that you watch it. Uh, really cool. Well, I think it just came on Netflix. Was it yesterday? Day before. So, yeah, I have not had a chance Friday, to watch yeah. it yet. Friday, yeah. So it is uh, – well, you're a day ahead of me, I think. So you got a little bit of a jump on it. But, yes, I am <laughs> it's definitely in my queue to watch for sure. I'm a couple hours ahead. I'm not quite a day ahead. Um, All right. Well, we we tell were – uh, and, and by tell the way, we Netflix. were – we were in the midst of watching Finch uh, on Apple with Tom Hanks, which we can talk about next next episode. Um, but we're we're uh, I think we're nearly at the end of that probably. So, so the reviews on that are surprisingly good. I have to say, I'm really surprised to see that actually. Yeah, I don't want to I don't want to say too much about it because I got to finish it, and we'll we'll again we'll talk about it next week. But I'm I'm enjoying it so far. It's not it's okay. not. I don't think I, at the end. I'm going to be like, Roberts, it's great. It's going to be in the Oscar conversation. Like, it's not, I don't think it's that at all. Yeah. But it, it is good. Okay. Well, well, to be continued with that discussion. There's some big, big news uh, from Bradley Cooper, who can be seen next in Paul Thomas Anderson's Licorice Pizza starting his own production company. Oh, right. Yeah. Well, he had one before, right? He was partnered with Todd Phillips for a few years. Right. I actually think A Star is Born was one of their productions. I think that's right, yeah. But now he's going out on his own following the success of A Star is Born. And one of his first projects is going to be Hyperion, based on a four-volume series of books by author Dan Simmons. They don't have a director yet, but I suppose it remains to be seen if Cooper will decide to step into that role as well. I'm sure the studio will want him to. As they, but they do have a screenwriter on board named Tom, Tom Spez, Spezali who is one of the Emmy-winning writers from Damon Lindelof's adaptation of The Watchmen for HBO. So that's a good start. Okay, yeah. So so Hyperion, I had to look it up because I'd never heard of it. Um, it's a massive sci-fi project. It's probably, I think you could compare it to Asimov's Foundation, which we just talked about. Or Dune. Yeah, or Dune. Uh, it is set 700 years after the death of what they call Old Earth, which is presumably our current planet. Um, and, of course, there's a galactic war going on, and seven strangers set out on this journey to unlock a mystery related to the Hyperion planet's time tombs, is what they're called. Now, I didn't know anything about the books, Um but the, the, they have their own wiki page. They're, they're very popular. So um, the time tombs are these mix, mysterious, these six mysterious structures on the planet. And prior to the fall of the government that oversees the galaxy now, it was widely believed that the time tombs were actually constructed in the future 
and subsequently sent traveling backward in time. Um, and speculation regarding the purpose of these tombs and the reason they were sent backward in time is part of the mystery that is revealed over the course of the novels. Well, that sounds like some uh, big world building. He's a long way from Will on Alias. A lot of respect for Bradley Cooper. Big fan. <laughs> yeah, it's quite. I mean, he's in now. Did you know he's an eight time Oscar nominee? Yeah, he's. That's, yeah, that's incredible. He, thinking back to Alias, thinking back to Wedding Crashers, where he started, that uh, was very unexpected. And I also really like that he is very picky on what he does. He doesn't just star in every other to produce every other film. He's very specific about what he lends his time to. And when he shows up, it's usually a pretty high quality project. I think I'm a big fan of uh, quality over quantity when it comes to these stars. Hint Dwayne Johnson. Um, <laughs> so I, yeah, I'm a big fan of his L- look forward to see what he does with that. Definitely. Me too. Um, I'm, I'm a Cooper fan. I thought star is born was an interesting choice uh, for a first directorial thing, but you know, that's cool. In the last episode, we talked a little bit about the tragic death of cinematographer Helena Hutchins on the New Mexico set of Rust. And now, according to The Hollywood Reporter, the first AD, Dave Halls, who Sean and I talked about, was somebody who was going to be probably on the hook, along with Armour or Hannah Gutierrez-Reed, for the accidental fatal shooting. And he has released a statement this week in which he said he hopes the tragedy prompts the film industry to, quote, reevaluate its values and practices to ensure no one is harmed through the creative process again. I think that's a pretty bullshit quote, personally. It's, it's a very weak attempt to blame shift try to take the focus on himself. But having said that, there are some signs that the industry is going to reevaluate its practices, if not its values, as numerous filmmakers have already made the commitment to switch from using live rounds, including uh, Sean, the gentleman you just mentioned, Dwayne Johnson, who produces a lot of movies through his Seven Bucks Productions. That is true. Speaking with Variety's Elizabeth Wagmeister at the premiere of his uh, 48th film this year, Red Notice, <laughs> he said, I can't speak for anyone else, but I can tell you without an absence of clarity here that any movie that we have moving forward with Seven Bucks Productions, any movie, any television show, anything we do or produce won't use real guns at all. We're going to switch over to rubber guns and we're going to take care of it in post. We're not going to worry about the dollars. We won't worry about what it costs. Well, there you go. I mean, I I don't think I notice most of the time when muzzle flashes are CG. I don't. I mean, obviously, in a movie like, let's say, the the, the Expendables or something, I can kind of tell. But that's that's maybe more to do with like the the CG blood spatter than the actual muzzle flashes. I don't know if I would catch it. I guess a, a a gunsmith would somebody who shoots guns a lot would be oh, it looks fake, but the reality is I don't feel like we necessarily have to have real muzzle flashes on a set like we have to have blanks. They've been doing it for a hundred years now, and now we've had three deaths, uh, which comparatively okay that's that's <laughs> you know three people dead in a hundred years of of using gunfire in film. Um, but at the same time, I don't know. I just don't think we need to do it. The, the A really detailed muzzle flash in a movie will cost 
about $1,000 in VFX. If it's somebody in the background, you know, like one of the stuntmen in the background firing off, that's going to cost like 600 bucks. It's not it's not terrible. So, I mean, I kind of like that he's saying it. I like that a couple other people are saying it. The um, About 200 high-profile DPs also released an open letter to the industry this week, um, and I have a portion of it here. It reads, We are Helena Hutchins' fellow directors of photography, and we vow not to let her death be in vain. We are calling for immediate action from our union leadership and producers and our lawmakers to effect unified change on our behalf. And then in capital letters, ban all functional firearms on set. Yeah, I think it's heading that direction. I think that it, uh, the industry historically, certain things have happened that have changed the course of filmmaking. And even though people have died on film sets before, this, this one seems to be so egregious and unnecessary that I think that there, there will be a lot of changes going forward. And one probably will be that there will be no more actual guns used on sets, which, you know, I, I, I think human life is most important. Although I do, I, I do like the full loads and die hard and leap weapon and Robocop and all these. I, I mean, I have to say, I mean, it, it's interesting that in the eighties when movies were at the, probably the most violent that films have ever been, that I don't recall anybody ever being killed by a, a gun on set. So maybe it was okay. uh, just just one guy uh, okay. on the set of cover up. That's right. In the early um, 80s. Yeah, he picked up. He Yeah, he picked up the gun himself. He was making a joke about how long the setup was taking or something. He picked up the gun and put it to his head. And the there was no there was nothing fired from the weapon, but the force of the weapon fractured a piece of his skull, which went into his brain. And uh, a week later, they took him off life support. So that was in the 80s. But I mean, yeah, we, we kind of talked about this before. Michael Bay alone is probably responsible for a trillion rounds of blanks being fired in the last 20 years. And nobody on his sets have, has died from gunfire. Yeah, Michael Bay is also known for hiring some of the most elite and high end and professional people in the industry. And I think that that's what it takes. Clearly, this 24-year-old armorer, and I say that with quotations around the word armorer, should not have been working on this film. But that's the problem with low budget is everybody wants to cut corners, whereas on a Michael Bay film, there there will be no corners. Yeah, but cut. I have to stick up for my low budget people, of which I am one. You know, as I said last week, we had a gun on our set, but our, our first AD did not touch that weapon. The prop people handled that weapon, verified that it was empty, showed it to the actor, placed it in the actor's hand, and we rolled, and then it went right back into the prop master's hand after that. So, I mean, this is just, a, as you said, it is a series of unfortunate events, but but all of them basically done by two people who were supposed to be responsible for safety. So, you know, we won't we won't go into it that much again, but the point is that I don't think we need live weapons on Saturday more. I do... Like you, I appreciate the days of seeing Bruce Willis firing off that machine gun on the top of Fox Plaza, uh, but I think he could just as easily spray the gun in the air and then do the VFX after. Well, I think that's where it is all heading. As my an friend. aside, the producers of Mayor of Easttown, HBO's Mayor of Easttown with Kate Winslet, put out on Twitter that the gunfire in that show was entirely visual effects, and I actually I didn't know it at all. 
Not at all. Had no idea. Had no idea. It looked pretty legit. So, well, let's move on to happier business. Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer, which is his next, uh, probably ninety-five percent IMAX filmed uh, release. It's he starts filming next year. Robert Downey Jr. and Matt Damon have joined Killian Murphy and Emily Blunt, who are reuniting after Quiet Place Two, which I predicted when they cast Killian Murphy as the lead that the studio was probably fine with that, but said, okay, you better surround him with some higher priced talent that we can slap on the poster and put on a trailer. So when they cast Downey Jr. and Matt Damon and Emily Blunt, that didn't surprise me. I think that's the only way that, that the studio probably signed off on him casting Killian Murphy in that role. So I'm excited about that film. It's a good cast. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, he's obviously been around forever. He was in all of the Nolan Dark Knight movies. He's in Dunkirk. He's in Inception. He's in 28 Days Later uh, for Danny Boyle way back when. So he's been a presence for a long time, but he's never cracked sort of leading man status. And I think part of that is he's a kind of a different looking guy. You know, he's not matinee idol handsome, but also Peaky Blinders on Netflix has a huge amount of fans. So one would think that, you know, he's recognizable enough to carry the film. But then obviously Universal was like, okay, Chris Nolan, we stole you from Warner Brothers and we're happy to have you, but let's let's hedge our bets here a little bit because we know you're going to spend a good penny on this movie. Well, it, it is a low-budget film, mind you. It's a, I think it's $120 million, which is hysterical. <laughs> but that is, for, for yeah. Chris Nolan, that is a low-budget film. But yeah, I, they still are going to surround him with as much... Yeah. Low budget yeah. and still more expensive than probably the Prestige and Insomnia put together, I would guess. <laughs> Look, those IMAX cameras are expensive, man. I mean, it's, you know, they they got to they got to get it done right. So, yeah, I'm excited about that film. I think it's well cast. And obviously, Chris Nolan is a very talented director. So two years from now, we'll be having a conversation about that release. Yeah, definitely. We will talk about that. I mean, I'm I'm very curious to see. I don't know that much about Oppenheimer, I, obviously the bomb, but I, I mean, I, it's, it's strange because I feel like the movie is just going to be in a bunch of people's offices or out in the desert blowing stuff up. Um, there were all these memes going around about Nolan having the meeting with Universal and saying, I want to actually blow up an atomic bomb and film it. <laughs> so, well, no, well, not only that, but I think that uh, Chris Nolan is going back in time to film that movie as well. I mean, he gets whatever he wants. So, yeah, it's going it's, it's to be pretty true to life, I think. Yeah, right. He's going to he's going to use the, the tenant technology, go in the little red room and come out of the blue room and actually be back in time. <laughs> <laughs> I guarantee you Universal will build a time Universal built a time machine for him to steal him away from Warner Brothers. They said whatever you want. <laughs> they were like, um, hey, Chris, we've been doing the R and D on this for like ten years yeah. hoping that we could get you over here. <laughs> right, right. That that was the that's the carrot they dangled in front of him. He said, All right, okay, I'm I'm in. So that'll be good. And with that, we are a wrap on episode one of stage sixteen. If you like what you heard, please take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review the show on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. You can follow and chat with us on social media. On Twitter, we're at Stage16Podcast. Instagram, we're at Stage16Pod. And we have a Facebook page as well on that Zuckerberg Hell site. So uh, chat with us. Let us know what you're watching, what you're thinking about it. And uh, thank you for listening. We'll be back in a week with the latest news and more fun chat. See you then.